Welcome to Policy Emma Combs, a data-focused conversation on trade-offs. I'm Carlos Carvalho from the Salem Center for Policy at the University of Texas at Austin. It's a pleasure to have with us today Professor John Cochran from the Hoover Institution, where he's a senior fellow. And let's continue our conversations on COVID-19 pandemic. So, John, um, you've been working talking about pandemics for a while. I remember seeing some posts you had years ago on uh, how that would be a much bigger shock than some of the things that governments like to talk about. So, you know, how long have you been thinking about that? And was that just an example of something that governments were not prepared for? Or did you really think of that seriously before? And, and why is that? Why is that something as consequential as this that we're living through right now? It seems that every single Western economy was not at all prepared to deal with, or a Western government was not at all prepared to deal with. Yeah, that, that's a deep question. So I'll, uh, like all interviewers, I, like all of your interviewers, I think there's a bias towards, see, I told you all along. <laughs> I want to give you that opportunity. Bias. <laughs> Sorry? Yeah. <laughs> there's a lot of chance for retrospective bias here. Uh, <clears throat> certainly, and I have to say, so I'm not a researcher in this area. I, I value real scientific peer-reviewed researcher. I'm a blogger. I run the Grumpy Economist blog, an op-ed writer, a pundit, a public intellectual maybe, uh, but that's been my role in thinking about these things. Um, with that disclaimer, yeah, uh, um, really as part of the, the climate, uh, there is a genuine climate science and then there's a climate hysteria. And uh, in thinking about that, I, uh, you know, there were people saying, what's the gravest danger facing Western civilization? And as I started putting together my lists 10 years ago of what are the greatest dangers facing Western civilization? Uh, it struck me that pandemics ought to be really high on that list, um, especially, uh, you know, historically, uh, every wave of globalization has led to a pandemic from the sixth century in the Roman Empire to the uh, plagues of the 1300s in Europe, which followed the opening to uh, the East. Of course, the um, I think the worst pandemic in terms of fraction of the population killed has to have been the um, the uh, Colombian, what are you supposed to call it these days? <laughs> Not the discovery of America, that's for sure. The long exchange. Yeah, I, that book 1491 really struck me about the, uh, yeah, the Colombian exchange. We gave them smallpox. Um, they gave us corn, we gave them smallpox. <laughs> like 90% 90, 90 of the population died and wiped out civilizations. And, and I don't want to go on. Uh, 1918 was obviously a, a similar case. So pandemic, uh, nuclear war, civil unrest, uh, regular war, crop failure. Uh, there's a whole lot of um, things that struck me as dangers to Western civilization. Uh, and um, because they come unexpectedly, unpreparedly, in a way that climate comes very slowly, uh, any healthy society ought to be able to figure out climate. It takes 100 years to come along. So, uh, yeah, I've been thinking about it a long time. And I'll just say, as uh, uh, we're still on background, um, in a way, I think we're extraordinarily lucky. Um, uh, societies are never prepared for tail events. Um, we got this virus is perfectly designed to get our attention without killing an enormous fraction of the population. Uh, there is nothing in the biology that says a virus like this can't kill 10, 20, 30, the bubonic plague, 50% of the population. Uh, we got just enough to scare us and wake us up, I, I dearly hope. 
Now, yes, as you said, everyone was completely unprepared. So that turns out to be false, uh, as, as I've now done a little more research in it. Um, you know, our, our leaders were smart. Uh, George Bush read a novel about pandemics, and, and there's a beautiful pandemic response plan with PowerPoints and pretty pictures and all the rest of it. It turns out, uh, and this is stuff, if your readers are curious, it's somewhere on my blog, there's like 12, 20 beautiful pandemic response plans from Health and Human Services and the Department of Defense, who worries about bioterrorism, that, that's one where bioterrorism, a designed virus, uh, imagine how, how open we are to that. Uh, and, and the one interesting fact of all of these is none of them cites the others, <laughs> which tells you about how much effect they've had. So the, what you need in this case is uh, public health, which is a local detailed thing. And the same way schools have fire drills. They don't have a manual uh, down in central administration what to do in case of fire. They have fire drills where the kids have to go out and practice, you know, getting ready. Uh, to stop a pandemic by public health means, uh, testing, tracing, um, uh, that sort of thing, you need a bureaucracy ready to go. And that's that low-level, well-trained bureaucracy, connecting the grand plans to a readiness on the ground is what we obviously didn't have anywhere in the Western world. So don't don't start Not in the West specific uh, and all the rest of us. Uh, you know, pretty much every Western country resorted to. You know, here's what I'm worried about. Then I'll stop. <laughs> uh, economic lockdown should be the. It, it's a panic button. It's that this is totally out of control. There's there should be a public health response where you find sick people and stop it from spreading. Not everybody has to stay home and we crater the economy for a while. Okay. All right. So that, that, then let's, let's talk about this specific one and, and go back to early February, maybe late February, early March, where news start coming out. We start getting worried about this. Maybe some people were worried about this before, but honestly, I have to confess that I wasn't. I was thinking, well, it's one, another, one, another one of those SARS things that happened a few years back. Mostly it's going to be contained in Asia. Uh, and then we start seeing Italy happening. And, and clearly by early March, I think everybody was really aware of, of the dangers coming our, our way. Um, so how were you approaching the problem then? What kind of data or, or, or information you're looking at or models you're looking at to sort of inform your thinking in preparing to evaluate the types of ideas we're putting forward? Um, so I'm going to comment a little more generally uh, first. Uh, you're exactly right. And it is a, uh, it's a feature, a common feature historically, and there's some blog post here that covered this thing. Uh, the way public authorities respond to pandemics has never changed through history. And the first response is, well, we don't want to scare people because most of the time there's a lot of false positives. Most of the time it's like SARS, it comes and goes. If you shut down the economy, they say, you got to be kidding. What a joke that was. Uh, so our, certainly our public officials, you know, there's a lot of 2020 hindsight among public officials. Oh, you should have closed it down three days earlier and so on and so forth. But that is just a feature of the way things work, which is why uh, I think you need a well-oiled, low-level bureaucracy that handles this stuff automatically rather than relying on presidential decisions. Uh, I just read the news. And in uh, February, the, uh, the uh, news was... Uh, fairly apocalyptic, uh, but uh, I sort of have an open mind too. Um, the news was apocalyptic, but we economists, we know one thing. We have a lot of experience with complicated computer models. <laughs> and uh, that, that is one thing that makes me uh, um, 
I don't want to say skeptic because that's a loaded word, a, a, a judicious evaluator of climate projections. Uh, in economics, there was the Club of Rome that forecast in 1972, we would run out of resources. The planet would fizzle by the 1980s. Keynesian macroeconomic forecasting and policy evaluation models fell to absolute pieces in about 1978 uh, and uh, have not come back. Uh, so we, we know something about forecasting model, big, big black box forecasting models going wrong. So like, yes, uh, the, the models at the time, the infamous uh, model from uh, the United Kingdom that was forecasting horrible stuff, you know, that looked, looked pretty terrible. 2% death rates at the time, uh, uncontrolled sweep through the population. You multiply 2% times a lot of people. And, and certainly I was uh, extremely worried about it, as, as was anybody uh, paying attention at the time. So that was about, you know, projecting something like 2.2 million deaths in the U.S., about 500,000 deaths in the U.K. And that was the, yeah. the, the sort of uh, uh, perhaps it, perhaps unfair to look at those numbers only in the context of that report in the sense that that might be the worst case uh, scenario. But then we start planning based on worst case at that point in time. So well, you do what, right. You want to place. But but so I, like you, I, boy, I saw that. and Wow. Uh, did I really believe it? it? You know, the logic was, uh, you know, you multiply two percent death uh rates by it sweeps to the population and it's uh um that it, it's hard to argue with that it turns out to have been largely wrong which is an interesting thing we'll get to uh but like you i so i, I look back at myself you know i actually took a, a trip to london in uh, in early march i look back saying what was i thinking uh, it was stuck in quarantine somewhere years old uh so we do we do all uh there's a two kinds of human psychology. One that that jumped, you know, the chicken little. The, the the world is always the sky is always falling. And the other kind that's slow to respond to danger. I'm I'm in the slow to respond type as well. But 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 okay. So we're looking at the dire predictions at that point, and and I think California was one of where you live was one of the few early states to say we have a shelter in place order, uh, where the, everything has to be shut down before any other measure was was tried in, in some capacity, right? So that was the first reaction of, of your governor. And we are still under the order two and a half months later, if not, if not more. Um, Unless you want to go pick up some free stuff down at uh, the local stores, but yes. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Uh, so, so at, at that point, I mean, as an economist, you were thinking, all right, so on one hand, I have two and a half, I don't know, let's say, take the proportion of those deaths in California as one outcome. On the other hand, the shelter-in-place order has its impact. Um, so I, I would have to, I, I, would, I, would, I should have prepared for this by looking back at the dates of my various blog posts and op-eds. I, I do want to congratulate myself. I think I was about two weeks ahead of uh, consensus opinion on a couple of these occasions. As the shutdowns were coming, I, I was kind of, as an economist, I was pulling my hair out that it seemed such a sledgehammer blanket uh, problem. I, I think I was advocating shutdown smart. Just take a little bit of thought about the what kind of activities are dangerous and what kind of activities are not dangerous. Uh, and, and rather than business is bad, shut down all business, um, try to come up with at least, uh, yeah, well, except they had the, uh, the essential business versus the non-essential business. Essential in California, I looked up the list, included uh, construction of affordable, quote, affordable housing. Uh, you know, non-essential included golf courses where you're completely unlikely to get it. Uh, so at least I was, I, was, I was praying for some sort of smart policy 
Uh, the trouble is, what this reveals is just the astonishing lack of bureaucratic capacity that we have in the U.S. to make any sort of judgment about how much danger to virus versus how much GDP or how many jobs are, 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 because that's, that's what you want. You want to get the reproduction rate under one at a minimal cost of GDP. That means you got to think about what you shut down and what you don't shut down and, and just think about some, only now is there base, vaguely some recommendations. Okay, you can reopen, but uh, stay six feet away from each other and so forth. This took two months to put together. Uh, so, so I do think I was at the time in the uh, shutdown uh, smart and uh, and not just business. Let's you know, birthday parties are the problem. Uh, so let's uh, let's have some recommendation. Plus, boy, it would be nice to use some sort of data. You know, places I, I, I go out to some of the wilds of the Central Valley for uh, various uh, hobby activities, and there's no coronavirus out there. <laughs> so just some some basic. Uh, how bad is it where you are? What are the dangers? What kind of businesses can operate? What kind of businesses can't operate? would have been, uh, boy, we could have done this with a lot. A lot. Even knowing what we know at, knew at the time, I think we could have done this with much less uh, hit to GDP. Yeah, it is surprising to me that that conversation was just not had. I mean, I remember you talking about that. And I remember using some of your, some of your, we talked actually early in that in, during this time. And I was working, helping some folks here in, in Texas. And we put together very quickly a measure of risk that's based on some labor labor department uh, surveys on on how often do you get close to somebody, how often you're in a car with five people or more of different activities. And we could break down very quickly, okay, activities versus employment versus GDP contribution. Just stare at that picture as a simple, you know, as a finance professor that looks just like a, an efficient frontier type of discussion, right? And, and, and it's obvious and it's simple, but it went nowhere. It went nowhere and the, the things that we put forward, people just said, had this notion of shut everything down, don't worry about any cost and let's wait. Um, so yeah, I, I was very concerned at that point in time and still am in the sense that I think that the tool are still going to still being considered for a potential second, second wave. In the U S we do seem to, well, once we've done something once, then our need to justify ourselves means that that's what we do uh, forever and ever. Right. So I worry that the lesson that I hope we would learn out of this, we need a robust detailed data driven public health, uh, uh, team ready to go and keep it going. You know, California had mobile hospitals that have put together a great cost after the SARS epidemic and our governor, Jerry Brown, cut them in order to save $5 million a year on the budget uh, in favor of his $80 billion high-speed train. Uh, so you got to not just get it, you got to keep it going during the years when nothing's happening. Uh, but it, that instead of that, we will learn the lesson. Okay, we're ready to go. Economic shutdowns, you know, here we go again. Ugh. Right. Uh, right. In the so, same way that financially we're replaying 2008 as if that was the perfect response. So when, when we're thinking about the, 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 the costs associated with shutdown, there's the obvious things about, okay, production is halted. That means, uh, I don't know, I think at some point the estimates are, it depends on where, who you look at, but $1 trillion a month seems to be a reasonable number of yeah. the economy stopping. I think uh, uh, Casey Mulligan has put the number at $7 trillion over a span of a year, the, 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 what we were looking at. The, this week, I think the number of coming out of 50% contraction in the second quarter is a possibility. I think Hassett was, was, uh, was putting these numbers out of the White House yesterday. But those are the, you can think about that as being a short term thing of like a long extended vacation. And we all stopped for two weeks, a month, 
And that's it. Fine, we're back. And and you know, sure, we forego the production and the money that's generated in those that month or so. But then then it's back up. It's just not quite like that, right? Yeah, and here uh, again, so I'm, I'm glad you're forcing me to come to terms with my own forecast. But I think I, I did fairly well on this one. My first op-ed on the subject very early on was thinking about the economic costs. And um, so it, it, as this started, um, you, the, you know, the first economic uh, impulse is to say this is a supply shock. We're shutting down businesses, but we shut down businesses every year from Christmas to New Year's and come right back January 2nd. Actually, it looks to me like we shut down businesses about Halloween to New Year's in the U.S. <laughs> now, uh, um, so that argues for the V-shaped recovery. Um, why isn't that going to happen? Well, first of all, we weren't prepared for it. Everyone keeps enough savings around to get, you know, get through there and, and, uh, Businesses know that they're not going to be people coming in during vacations. Uh, but the big problem is this goes on for months. It's unexpected. And uh, Americans are once again up to their uh, necks, uh, up to the gills in debt. Um, you, you, if, if not all Americans, but many are. Um, restaurants, you know, they can't last. They can't keep paying their bills for months on end with nothing coming in. Uh, and, and all businesses that way. Um, once again, uh, most business is going into this highly leveraged. Um, and that means that a long shutdown, a long total shutdown of this magnitude, even in the Great Recession, we didn't go to zero. You know, you might have lost 10, 20 percent of your business. You didn't lose everything for months on end. So that that could lead to a wave of, of bankruptcies. Now, bankruptcy isn't the end of the world, uh, especially if you're a big corporation like an airline. But it, it, it leads to liquidation more often than not for small businesses. And, you know, people's homes could get foreclosed. And, and see, the, the danger is that a, a pandemic turns into a financial crisis. And then the businesses just aren't there to reopen when you get go, going again. So that, uh, I think, was the central economic problem to worry about. Isn't it not a month or two of, of terrible output and is, is that's to be expected. You shut everything down. Uh, the question is, are people, um, are people who are reporting unemployed, are they really unemployed or are they just waiting for their companies to call them back? Well, if the company's still there, the company can call them back. <laughs> if the company's not there anymore, that's going to be harder. And the longer this goes on, I think the longer those uh, adjustments are going to happen. It just takes much longer to find a new job than it does to go back to your old job. Um, so those are the, and, and, um, you were asking retrospectively. I think that that was my first op-ed that, that this is the danger and trying to think hard about uh, how do we do that? How, how do we get through that problem? And, and outside of economics, were you thinking about any other costs that were not being openly discussed um, about the, the shutdown? Uh, privately, sure. But I, I try to keep my public comments to economics. Um, it is there's a lot there's a lot of discussion now about, uh, you know, you're, you're saving one kind of health at the expense of all sorts of other kinds of health. Uh, I, I've stayed away from that because I don't think it's that salient. Um, uh, and I'm not, I'm not really an expert on which kinds of health you do. You know, I don't have anything special to say about that. It does strike me as like one of the things that we, we try to do is to flatten the curve so we don't overwhelm the hospitals. So what we do instead is shut down the hospitals for two months. The logic of that is just flawless to me. <laughs> well, uh, it's, it's, <laughs> it's not really, quite like that. I, I get it. But <laughs> there's this really interesting thing that happened. Uh, so we, we learned that the demand curve for medicine does slow, slow, slope down after all. Exactly. Turns uh, out. <laughs> everyone thought hospitals would be, uh, would be overwhelmed. In fact, it turns out hospitals weren't overwhelmed, even with COVID patients, except in New York. 
and everybody stayed home from all their minor stuff. And so hospitals are in, are in about as bad financial shape as restaurants. In particular, we have this system, as, as you know, we and I have talked about this otherwise, uh, our, our monstrously uh, uh, dysfunctional health system relies on cross-subsidies from paying customers for elective surgeries in order to pay for emergency room treatment. So all of the paying customers who used to be uh, uh, pay, uh, footing the bill for everything have disappeared for a while. Right. I, I am disappointed a little bit on, on the economics profession during that time. I think that there's been, there's been a lot of great work. The economists jumped into the retool and, and think about the, the, the infectious uh, the models, uh, given that their knowledge, as you pointed out before, they have knowledge on those black box, the black box, those computer models based on ODEs and so on. So, so it's, it's not that different from the tool set. And it's right. great. There's a lot of great work being done there. But what I thought was lacking in the discussion early on from economists, labor economists, for example, is to talk about the impact of shutting down our schools for two months, uh, the long-run impacts of that, and 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 it's just very little consideration of that. Given, uh, and maybe you know, in the very first instinct of of a two-week break to figure out what to do and so on. But once we realize that no, no schools open since March uh, across the entire country. The other thing I think I'll fault our economists uh, friends on: we, we still live in this advice for the benevolent uh, planner. Um, mode. And we also assume that benevolent planner is, is, has a detailed bureaucratic capacity to implement things. Um, we don't study regulation anywhere near enough, I think in part because it's just there's a lot of anecdote, but not a lot of data easily available. But the story of this has really been the story of catastrophic failures of the uh, low-level regulatory agencies. The, the FDA refusing to certify plants where people want to, you know, we, the, the greatest economy on earth cannot, in a matter of months, produce 50-cent plastic face masks. Are you kidding me? Well, the FDA won't certify your plant. It has to be, you can't use a paint face mask. It has to be certified. And the ones that are the China selling to the European Union are only certified for European Union. They're not certified for the U.S. Uh, the CDC uh, bungling on the testing was just uh, remarkable. Uh, and, and as we talked about, the inability of our governments to do anything other than just everybody stay at home except for whatever we deem essential. And even then, the essential workers, you know, they, they, ambulance drivers weren't wearing face masks for the longest time, you know, at, at least a minimum of thinking about it. Um, now, to, the, to your point, uh, so economists have been great. You sit around the lunchroom and we're full of these great, clever ideas. Oh, well, we should just separate the vulnerable people and let it spread and all this stuff. But uh, um, just the, the bluntness of the regulatory tools compared to the cleverness of our models uh, is something that I think we need to pay more attention to. All right, so let's fast forward to now, given what we learned now. So in early March, maybe there was scary news that we were thinking of this being different than what we know right now. Um, how have you updated your, your understanding of the severity of this? Of uh, Are there any particular models or information that currently gives you a better understanding or wh where you are right now? And this is, by the way, just for, for the video. This is June 3rd here <laughs> that we're talking. Yeah, so here's really where we get dangerous because I'll, I'll offer a forecast that will undoubtedly be wrong. <laughs> no, no, before your forecast, just, just given what, what, you know, what has updated your view on this? So... Um, uh, my own thinking and my reading, uh, I think I've learned a couple things. We've all learned the death rate is much lower among young, healthy people than we thought. Uh, vast majority of the deaths are, are among old people, you know, like half are in nursing homes. Uh, 
We have learned <clears throat> that the SIR models were fundamentally wrong. Uh, so the basic model, um, and, and this is easy to understand, a virus spreads exponentially. I give it to two people, he gives it to two people, they give it to two people and so forth until it runs into some force that slows it down. The basic model said the only force that slows it down is the people you're running into have already gotten it and they're immune. And that's the herd immunity idea. Uh, well, it turns out the force that slows down the reproduction of virus is people aren't total morons and even their governments aren't total morons. They change their behavior so they don't give it to as many people. <laughs> um, so I and, and many economists started exploring what you know we call behavioral SIR models, where the limiting factor is not that you run into people who've already had it. You're still in a situation where the, most people haven't had it, but the limiting factor is changes in behavior, economically costly changes in behavior that limit the spread of the disease. Uh, my little model on that was very interesting to me. It, it, it always settles out at a reproduction rate of one. Now let's um, the reproduction rate's the key parameter here. Uh, if, if the reproduction rate's less than one, it goes away. If the reproduction rate's greater than one, it gets bigger. And so the goal of all, the number one goal is get the reproduction rate below one. But if people are, uh, if people pay more attention uh, to it when there's more of it around and less attention when there's less of it around, uh, then the reproduction rate just settles to one kind of always. Uh, so that was an interesting, my, my little behavioral SIR model. That led me to think that what's going to happen is not a massive second wave where everything they were forecasting in February comes back in the fall, but instead this just trundles along uh, with a reproduction rate around, you know, wiggles, embers, embers come, embers get put out, people pay more and less attention. Um, uh, and, and then, um, as it, as we learn more about the disease and people uh, are able to take more care at less economic cost, uh, then the total number of infections slowly dies away. Uh, so I'll, I'll put that on, <laughs> that's my forecast. There's good news. The good news is I don't think we're, we're primed for a huge second wave that does kill the millions of people that they were forecasting. You know, they, they keep saying, well, it, it's coming. Uh, the bad news is that until there is uh, um, really good testing tracing and the bureaucratic capacity to do something with the testing and tracing, that's the main thing missing. You, we have the tests. We just, our, our bureaucracies don't know what to do with test results. Um, and they're now thinking, oh, we need to hire some contact tracers, don't we? Well, that would have been a nice idea six months ago. Um, so anyway, that, that thought leads me to think that we're gonna be living with this at low level for uh, quite some time. The second thing I've learned is uh, the importance of super spreaders, uh, heterogeneity. Economists, this is behavior and heterogeneity. Boy, what are the two biggest things that economists uh, think about? Let me point out one thing. I think when you say a behavior model, I think some people who think about, it's a rational model. Right? It's a rational model that takes into account behavior. It's not a behavior as, as some behavior economic models are. are. Just yeah, I'm, I'm really sad that the behaviorists uh, got to uh, steal a perfectly good term. We are all behavioral economists. We study human behavior. We write down models of human behavior, and then we see if those models work. That's what I meant by behavior, as opposed to mechanical. Uh, we, diseases do not spread in humans the way they spread in rats, because humans understand there's a disease out there. Thank you for the terminological correction. Um, the second most really important thing is the importance of super spreaders. And you've heard the stories, uh, you know, cruise ships, nursing homes, 
um, meatpacking plants, um, uh, birthday parties, uh, weddings, uh, choir practice. This thing is is spread most in place in, in situations where. Uh, a fairly large number of people is indoors together for quite some time and they're talking or singing and therefore it's not just droplets that go from one person to another but little aerosols that spread through a room. Now why does that matter? Uh, all tails are fat tails <laughs> and uh, if our goal is to get the aggregate reproduction rate below one, it does not help much to take an economist whose reproduction possibility is like 0.5 and make his 0.4. <laughs> what matters is getting hold of these super spreader events where one person gives it to 70. If you can just stop that, you get the aggregate reproduction rate below one. And the, the best part about it, most of those things don't contribute a lot of GDP. Meatpacking plants are, are kind of, that, that's a hard one, but uh, birthday parties, choir practices, stuff like that, uh, that is the central activity. So the, the good news on that is that I think there is a way for this to, that the behavioral response can be both government and individual just avoid these super spreading nuclei. Now that doesn't mean it's, they, there's a difference between public and private health. Um, you can still get it by, you know, contact with one person. But from a public health point of view, all you got to do is stop the super spreading activities and, and the thing will go away. So those two, I'll, I'll now put my forecast chips on it. I think this will trundle along with us for a long time uh, without a huge second wave. Uh, and I think that uh, part of the reason is we're not that dumb. We're not going to put COVID patients back into nursing homes again. No one's going to be that dumb to do that again. Uh, we're going to take precautions at meatpacking plants. Uh, now, here, my, my faith in human rationality is a little bit unsettled. I wrote an op-ed just before Memorial Day saying people aren't dumb. They're not going to go congregate in places where you can have a super spreading activity. And then Memorial Day weekend came along and there were the pictures of all the crowds on the beach. And I'm reading stories from, from the places that have let up. Uh, you know, Korea, uh, South Korea, which was admirable in its public health response, then it let up and people went to nightclubs. Nightclubs? Are you out of your mind? Uh, there's a New York Times, uh, we'll talk about a very good super spreading article in the New York Times a couple of days ago and it reported on cases from Hong Kong. Hong Kong did a good public health job and then kind of reopened and one guy gave it to 73 people because he went to karaoke bars. Karaoke bars? <laughs> <laughs> ah, ah, yeah, I've been defending human rationality all these years and... Uh, well, they're, uh, they're my preferences. That's totally rational, right? So. <laughs> but anyway, from a, from a sort of society point of view, I, I have hope that we don't have to, every single one of us, monitor every deal, detail of our behavior and make sure that every jogger wears a face mask if we can just uh, stop the super spreading activity. So those are the two central things uh, I've learned. Um, it seems that that uh, not only the behavior model that you're talking about, but this idea of avoiding the, the, the heavy tails seems to just started even before all the places were in lockdown. Uh, that's again, gives me hope on the rationality of people. You, so, you see this, this, this uh, crashing mobility data and, and all sorts of things, even prior to governments implementing forced lockdowns. Oh, by the way, let's to be clear, the forced lockdowns that we have in the US were very different, for example, than the ones we had in Europe. We don't have police yelling at us 
to go back to our house, thankfully. Um, and I got yelled at at a, at a golf course, but you know, walking with my two and a half year old son. But beyond that, and, and we didn't have we didn't have the draconian real measures that, that are, and yet the degree of the, the the it looks like the 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 reproductive rate of the virus was sort of quickly going to t- something around one from the beginning of, of of the data showing something around two and a half or so, right? Airlines, restaurants, mobility data. That that's uh, Tom Phillipson at the CEA has been doing a great job of assembling. He's got a bunch of tweets showing uh, private behavior. Uh, figured this out very quickly. Now that's well, as we start to think about the recovery. Um, when are you going to a restaurant again? <laughs> a nice, you know, a great uh, New York City indoor restaurant with uh, loud uh, everybody yelling, or even taking an airline flight. You know, when are you going to feel comfortable taking an airline flight? There's, there's, there's a. In some sense, people can also be too cautious, and uh, as long as the virus is sputtering along, um, this is a, another sort of insight I've. Been thinking about for the last month or so, uh, how, how much of a recovery we're we going to get? Well, those sectors, I just cannot see them coming back as long as this virus is is uh, out there and uh, trundling along. Now, do you have an insight on on why it is that we took this very fairly radical option as a measure to to attack this problem of locking people down across the entire Western world? Uh, putting our economies in pause for two months or more, um, given that that it seems that that's like the, the 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 sort of benefit of the doubt on on not doing that should be very high, and and yet it became very it spread like wildfire as the thing to do, if not for one single country that still are doing the reasonable thing and showed us that individual behavior and clipping the tails can avoid a exponential growth of the disease. By the way, to me, that, that, that case study is proof proof that, okay, if you ask people to do the right thing, it's possible to not have the, the, the exponential growth. They are trundling. And you're saying, you're saying what's exactly what's happening there. They're just keeping this is going to be the slow burn for a while, right? Um, no, people, people do say Sweden, Sweden does have a higher death rate than, and than other countries, uh, and, but they achieved that. They made kind of a cost-benefit trade-off about that. Right. Um, um, that rate again is very much involved, associated with the with the nursing homes. Right? I think seventy percent of deaths in Stockholm were nursing home related. They didn't do a good job protecting those folks. That that's the reality. Now, this, this is a more a political question than an economic question. Um, we, certainly, there's uh, lots better economic policies we can think of uh, for doing this. And and I'll just give a light light heart. You know, you a uh, no political leader has. Uh, it's very hard to, to do too much in a crisis. So uh, the political calculation, now why do, they t- why do they start by lying about it and saying, oh, it'll go away? Because you don't want to be the guy who shut down the economy for SARS. But once the public is convinced that this is a big problem, uh, then it's, there's very little political cost to doing too much uh, to solve a big problem. And that's, I think, why they uh, clamp down with the big sledgehammers. And now it's going to be, as you said, right, a lot of justifying that that was a good idea, that policy choice is not a bad one. And, and you already see that happening. A lot of people claiming causal effects on, on, on well, we're supposed to kill 2.5 million people. We kill 100,000 people. So the lockdown saved 2.1. Yeah. Like, oh. <laughs> so that kind of, that kind of conversation has already started. 
Nobody lost a lost a uh, election, right? For saying, well, if you'd let another twenty thousand old folks in nursing homes die, you know, maybe we could have gotten along with fifteen uh, percent unemployment instead of twenty percent unemployment. That that doesn't that doesn't win an election. <laughs> I think this is a question. It's a good question. Uh, uh, do you have a sense of whether we're going to be able to try to estimate what would have been? What's the counterfactual here? What would, what if we had done Sweden? How different you think are uh, the the because the, obviously there'll be a change there'll be a, a shock in demand by by what you're saying people's behavior would change people would not fly they not go to cruise ships etc cetera, etc cetera. that has an impact on the economy do you have a sense would you would you would you dare putting a number on 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 that counterfactual I I I think that's let, let's uh, you're going to be talking to students here's a good thesis topic <laughs> the uh, the uh, Part about it is it's a, you need to do some mi pretty detailed micro modeling to figure that out. So um, like we have a dog, they shut down the dog hair groomer. Why exactly a dog groomer is a, you know, worth shutting down. So there's an example. Uh, if they had said uh, all businesses are shut down except essential businesses and dog grooming businesses, <laughs> we can figure out, you know, how much more would the virus have spread? Zero. And how much uh, GDP would you get out of dog grooming businesses? Uh, I think you'd have to make that calculation, um, along with uh, uh, could could we, even the businesses that remained open. I, I was shocked at how you know, like the Amazon workers had to go on strike to get sort of basic stuff in, imposed at Amazon. Um, so the private sector did a pretty darn good job, but there was. Uh, it was interesting how much was going on and just the, the idea was, well, we're essential, so it's business as usual. So obviously this could have been done at, at much, much less economic cost. Uh, how much? Good question. Yes, that, 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 that's definitely, I, I mean, I, I hope that at least gives an opportunity to study this is the, the difference in time between different states and things. But again, the big, the, the, the big lost opportunity, we shouldn't be talking about economic shutdowns at all. The big lost opportunity is in January, a competent public health response. Uh, you know, use the German test, all right? Um, shut down flights from Europe, flights from China, even if you don't have to shut down the flight. The, the Chinese were, uh, bless their hearts, they, they, they were at least using temperature. They had, they had, you go into an airport and there's a video machine that, that takes everyone's temperature. The TSA just started talking last week about maybe we should get some of those, uh, you know. So um, uh, hitting this early and hard with standard public health measures is the lost opportunity that we should be bemoaning. Do you see any hope of us actually tooling up on that and doing, doing uh, but again, I can go back to your point in the beginning of if we're worrying about these things like climate change, that is a hundred years from now, potential problem that we have a lot of time to adjust. And by doing so, we don't worry about investing the things that might hit us today, um, uh, we're not ready when those things happen, right? So right now we have this opportunity, but and you, this virus, as you said, was, was not bad enough to really wipe half of the population out. Uh, but one of those could come. Do you have hopes that we're going to create that infrastructure? And Because and, again, there's the state capacity problem, right? We, have, we do too many things and perhaps not too many things that we need to do and not do them very well. Now, uh, I, I have to try to remain hopeful and not too cynical about the project of American democracy. Uh, I mean, I will echo the, the Paul Romer's got it exactly right. We're, we're spending $7 trillion on sending checks to voters. 
and we can barely, you know, and, and then we're fighting about who's going to pay for masks and who's going to pay for testing. Uh, you know, $100 billion on test everybody in the damn country would, would th- that would solve it instantly. Um, but, uh, you know, we, we, we're, we're, barely, we're, we're barely even touching that sort of thing. So, you know, a country who can't do that, can, do we have still the capacity uh, as a government to undertake long-term reforms? I don't know. We, so we, we sort of did in response to terrorism. There, there, at least whether it was successful or not or useful or not, there was a, um, a, a deep, low-level bureaucratic you know, we, we discovered after 9-11 that the cops don't know the phone number of the firemen who don't know the phone number of the FBI who can't call the FAA. So let's, let's give everybody the contact list and make sure they know what the phone numbers are. Um, so we did, we did, in that instance, have the capacity to put together a, a, a detailed bureaucratic response. Um, can we do that again? I, I hope so. <laughs> if not, the next one will come and it'll, it'll be worse. All right. So final question. When we're thinking about the long-term consequences, growth associated with this, we already talked about that a bit. Uh, and assuming that this is going to be with us for a while until a vaccine is, is available, how would you evaluate the, the, our ability, as a, the, the ability of the private sector in the U.S. in particular? Because uh, I, I guess I'm asking this question from a prior that I have that the U.S. economy, the U.S. private sector is just more flexible than the European one, for example. And I think that's going to give us, that gives me hope that we'll be able to adjust. We'll be able to adjust a little faster. We'll be able to relocate resources in ways. Would you agree with that? Do you, do you have a, a, a general, so we could even think more specifically in this country, inside of the country, do you think there'll be a different type of recovery in different parts of the country? Um, yes. So, boy, this is going to be shown not tomorrow, isn't it? So <laughs> making forecasts. So I, I want to say at the outset, uh, the economic future is is very uncertain, um, and that's a deep point. I, I think all of our public policy should be based much more on recognizing the uncertainties of, of economic forecasts rather than here's the conditional mean, and now we're going to act as if that's certainty. Uh, and I do think that, uh, you know, like the mil- military, some scenario planning, bracing for the worst, is as important as making the forecast. So, you know, there's good and bad scenarios out here. A lot of it depends on the disease. If the disease fizzles away quickly, if we do get uh, testing, testing is just one of the, is just a way of reducing the economic cost of getting the reproduction rate below one. So if we, either by testing or other means, find ways to reduce the economic cost of getting the reproduction rate below one and it goes away by the end of fall, uh, I think there's a chance to go back to sort of normal uh, fairly quickly. If not, you know, the other, the downside is that it trundles along, the economy stays depressed, then the financial uh, crisis part of it does hit, and then we're into a recession for a long time. The other dangers, of course, is just how much damage is the government going to do in its uh, efforts here? Um, you know, uh, as much as I feel for people who've lost their jobs, if you pay people more to stay unemployed than to go back to their jobs, they don't go back to the jobs, they don't find new jobs. Um, and there is a big shift in demand uh, going on. So the flexibility you mentioned, uh, we do need to move, uh, people need to move to different kinds of jobs and different kinds of activities. Uh, so the U.S., I guess, uh, yes, uh, as you look at the U.S., you kind of despair of our lack of flexibility until you look at all the rest of the world and then you say, ah, oh, things could be a lot worse. Uh, will those shifts happen? Uh, and I think there will be some shifts. Um, 
So first, as long as the costs of dealing with the virus are high, we have a supply shock and we're going to be trundling along. The good part of that is a lot of the need is for low-skilled workers. So if there is a decently functioning labor market for low-skilled workers, they ought to, there's a lot of jobs in wiping things down and checking who's got the masks on and contact tracing and so forth. Uh, now we have a singular ability to screw up labor markets, but... Um, but that's not good GDP. All, all that stuff, you know, those are low-skilled jobs. And, and if restaurants have to serve every two spots, then restaurants are going to cost twice as much, which means people aren't going to go out that much. And, and uh, you know, wages for restaurant workers are going to be lower. And that goes around the economy. And there are some uh, worrisome, uh, um, I, I think, I still think the debt matters. <laughs> and uh, what, the, you know, the, the aftermath, the disincentive aftermaths and the, and the deficit aftermaths of where we're going. Um, if we respond to this stuff with a, a whole raft of, of new, um, both programs and, and debts that have to be paid off, that's, there's, there's a big economic danger for this lying around for a long time. And the shifts in demand could be pretty huge. Already, um, uh, cities, I think, were in trouble. Right. Um, we've all learned how to do Zoom. Uh, as much of a pleasure as it usually is to come to Texas, you and I did this. So the social network fixed costs of Zoom, uh, of online, I've, we've kind of all, well, that, that's going to change a lot of how businesses do things. Uh, Facebook and has said half of their employees are going to work from home from now on. Well, that's uh, not great news for the real estate market in uh, Menlo Park. <laughs> now, maybe that's a good thing since I'm completely outrageously priced here. Um, are cities going to survive, I think, is a big question. I, I know a lot of young tech millennial types who were just, you know, a year ago, oh, I have to live in San Francisco because the bars, the restaurants, the nightlife, the so forth. Uh, and now... Um, and now they're all saying, well, I think it's time to move down the peninsula where I can send my kids to a public school. And uh, and there are some bars and restaurants, which are, you know, especially after looting, those are going to be, uh, when our business is coming back and, and the state and local government finances are an absolute disaster. Um, so that, you know, it, it may look like, cities may look like a Batman movie for a while. And that would be a kind of a, that's an example of a shift in demand that's going to take a while for the U.S. economy to think about. Yeah, and it's amazing how quickly, right? Not long ago, we were writing about, like, we should be building more in the city. Cities should just be more dense. We should encourage density. That's the, the, the NIMBYs might have won this from a completely lucky way. They might have won. This yeah, is if you're worried about gentrification. Well, your worries are over. Uh, although I do want to, you know, I'm going to check you on linguistics. It's not, we should, we should allow. <laughs> we should have allowed people to build in cities. Right. We should build. <laughs> that's right. That's right. That's right. All right, John, um, this is great. Thank you so much. And thank you for all the work you do on, on the Grumpy Economist. Uh, I make my students read a lot of things from there. It's, it's incredibly informational for all of us. Thanks. It's great to talk to you. And, and I hope all of this doesn't look completely dumb by the fall. No, hopefully not. All right. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to Policy at Macomb's. 